Mary Alice Monroe is the New York Times bestselling author of 27 books, including her latest instant bestseller, The Summer of Lost and Found. Nearly 8 million copies of her books have been published worldwide, and she's earned numerous accolades and awards, including induction into the South Carolina Academy of Authors Hall of Fame. Through her novels and the research and volunteer work she immerses herself in prior to her writing, Mary Alice Monroe works to champion the fragility of the Earth's wild habitat. The coastal southern landscape in particular has become a strong and important focus of many of her novels. Sea turtles, bottlenose dolphins, monarch butterflies, and shorebirds are among the species she has worked with and woven into her novels. Monroe is an active conservationist and volunteer, serving on several boards working to protect wildlife. Mary Alice is here today to share with us more about her inspiring passion for the work that she does and the impact that she hopes to make through her writing. Let's take a listen. Okay, so I have with us here today Mary Alice Monroe. How are you, Mary Alice? Christy, I'm wonderful. Joy to be here. Thank you so much for being here with us. And I want to start by reading some of your reviews. So we'll start with Southern Living says, Mary Alice Monroe is saving our wildlife one book at a time. The New York Times says, readers come for the characters, but stay for the animals. With nearly 8 million copies of your books now published worldwide, you truly have become a champion for the fragility of the Earth's wild habitat. The coastal southern landscape in particular has become a strong and important focus for many of your novels. Can you tell us what initially inspired you to get involved in this way? And when did you feel the pull to start incorporating this focus into your writing? That's such a good question because it's really at the core of a a conscious decision that I made in the late 90s. And I'd always been interested in conservation. My family was, we've had sheep farm in Vermont. So it was was very much a part of my world. But in 1998, I moved to Charleston, South Carolina, actually to the barrier island. And my sister who lived in Florida had told me about the loggerhead sea turtles. And in Florida, that's the Mecca for the loggerheads. You know, we have them in South Carolina, but not like Florida. And she described in beautiful detail, she's an artist, how during a dinner party, a loggerhead came ashore to lay her nest. And she described how the female wept tears while she lay her eggs. And the metaphor of a mother crying for her children just sent my blood stirring. So in 1998, when I moved to Isle of Palms permanently, uh, I the very first thing I did was join the Island Turtle Team because <laughs> I wanted to research this animal. I didn't know what the story was about. I just knew it was my inspiration. And that was 23, 24 years ago, and I'm still a member of the team. But what happened in that year, from 1998 to 2000, I did every aspect I was licensed or permitted by the state of South Carolina to monitor the nests. And I knew when the visitors would come to the island that the questions that they asked were not idle board questions, that people really wanted to know. What do you mean lights out for turtles? What does that mean? Or because we had serious light disorientation issues. Or they said, I looked at the children and their eyes were wide and the parents' eyes were wide with with interest and curiosity. 
And it was against what all the naysayers said about people don't care about wildlife. I found out, yes, they do. So I decided to write a book set against the backdrop of the, of the South Carolina loggerheads and write a saga, a family saga. I changed the way I wrote books. It was a decision on my part that what I was going to accomplish with this book was, number one, tell a good story. I'm a novelist. But the second thing was to help my readers learn about loggerheads, understand why they're threatened or endangered, and number three, what they could do to protect them. And no one wants to have someone point their finger and tell you what to do. And that's the power of story. That's the difference. It's the emotion. So I wrote a book about a mother-daughter reconciliation and the backdrop. She was a turtle lady, the mother, and it was called The Beach House. And I knew, Christy, that I'd written something unlike anything I'd written before or had read before. It was special. And I just, the publisher just put it out there, no fanfare, and it boomed. It was my first New York Times hit. So I knew I hit a I hit something. You were on to something. I was sure. on to something. And but you I, know what was so gratifying was that it said to me, it greenlit my ability to continue. Yeah. I so since that time, I have written books set against an endangered species of some sort. That is so powerful. I love that backstory because <laughs> it has so much, you know, heart and intention. And I love that you were just really brave enough to completely switch things up a little bit you it know completely, the- it completely changed the way I wrote novels you know I wrote I used to write from themes but how do you teach people how do you educate painlessly without being overbearing so, so my process later became I did academic research so I know a lot about the the species I talked to the experts but the third thing I always do is to roll up my sleeves and become a volunteer I work with the wildlife because the I always say the animals tell me what to teach my it's my response that I share with my readers so when I look at a dolphin in the eye it's how I feel that excites the reader because I can describe it. And it's that that's the key, the emotion through the viewpoint of the characters that connects reader to the species in a very visceral way that makes them care. And I think the joy is after they finish a novel, which I hope the characters they love and the plot and exciting, but when they close their book, they go, oh, you know, I learned a lot about dolphins or butterflies or sea turtles. Yeah, it's that's- a surprise. That's so amazing. Like what a gift to be able to give your readers beyond just a, you know, a story that they feel entertained by and can connect Mm. to, but like to leave them with that knowledge. And I was going to ask you, as you mentioned that in preparation for your writing, you say you immerse yourself in academic research and uh, work with wildlife experts, as well as that hands-on volunteering you were mentioning. So can you tell us more about how that knowledge and experience, how you use that to craft the stories? Well, you don't, you have to have an academic understanding of the species before you begin. First of all, when I choose a species, how do you, how does that even happen? It's instinctive. I have, uh, you trust your, you trust your ear. So when I hear someone say, Mary Alice, you better do something about the shrimp boats, you know, the shrimpers, because they ain't going to be around long. My, when I get a response like, mm, my blood boils, then I know I'm up to something. <laughs> 
I heard it, right? I heard it. Like, I know there's a book about whales coming and I just got to find, but you, and manatees, I want to, I know there's a story, but until I hear the click of something, someone either in the news or research or something that this is the time, because you have to be a little bit prescient yeah. as an author. Yeah, I believe so. That's what Joseph Campbell always said. The author, uh, the authors are, are writers and artists are shamans. So I trust my instincts. And then you do begin the academic research to understand, is there enough here to, you know, is there a story here? Once that decision's made, I go out and talk to the ex- experts in the field and they know who I am. They've understood, most of the people in wildlife world know that when I come to knock on their door, that I'm not just going to ask a lot of stupid questions. I really understand this species. I understand what they're trying to achieve. And they understand that I'm going to reach an audience they can't. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very, it's a, it's a partnership. And I, I do feel that over 20, it's been 20 years, Christy. And I can look back over the 20 years and know that I've made a difference. Mm-hmm. That it's been, it was truly a mission 20 years ago, not to preach to the choir, but to catch the unsuspecting person who wants a good read or a beach sitting on the beach, looking at the ocean, grab a book and, oh my God, I learned so much about dolphins and no, I'm not going to feed the dolphins. And I understand why. So it's, it's been a beautiful 20 years. I love that. I love that you say that it was like a decision on your part to decide how you could use these books as a force for good. So what has it been like, you know, for you, if you can expand upon that a little bit to write with such intention now, this many novels later, what would you say is the greatest impact you think your stories have had thus far? People learning, people being surprised that they care. I have letters from people who've joined the turtle team. I have letters from people who moved to South Carolina or the coastal Florida because of the books. Wow. <laughs> people who, yeah, I know, who plant butterfly gardens across the country. I mean, they, it, you never know what book is going to spark a reader, but I'm hoping that they find that one connection and ultimately it gets them outdoors. It gets the reader to say, I'm curious about what's wild, to get out from the computers, to get out from the looking at nature through a pane of glass and to experience, let the sun shine on their face and feel that connection. Because once they feel that connection, they, they are empowered. We are all empowered when we are connected with nature. Some people call it a God power, but whatever it is, it's... It, we need it, and I feel like there is a, a sense of unease or dis-ease currently where we're spending so much time indoors and with so much time in isolation, and that disconnect is not healthy for us. Yeah. So I think the impact I'm having, and I, with my middle grade series especially, um, getting children unplugged is so critical, and I feel that the response to the books is that they suddenly realize I care. And my mantra is if you care, you take care. Right. Right. And and when you know better, you do better that that when you, when you realize that there is, there's a need for us to care more. And I love that you say, you know, it's everything you're, you're doing is done with such great intention 
to bring us out of, you know, our bubbles, our tech bubbles and bring people to even just in speaking to you about it, hear you talk about it. It makes me want to be outside with wildlife, you know, and connect more to nature. And it's just kind of this sweet reminder of how much we need that connection to, you know, mother nature and to the wildlife. And you did just mention your middle grade uh, series. Can you tell us more about what inspired you to move towards that genre? Christy, this has been the joy of my later career. <laughs> I have always wanted to write for this young generation. I have written picture books. Whenever I had a lot of information that I wanted to share to you very young, I did two picture books. I was going to do more. One um, turtle summer for about the sea turtles and the other was butterfly called hope about butterflies and to help kids not be afraid of insects but those are the very young but when I went to the schools it was those eight to 12 year olds that I fell in love with because when you speak to that age group they want to save the world they have such confidence and um, a cocky confidence what do you want to be when you grow up I want to be a ballerina and a judge I love that when they say that and they absolutely oh I'll say to these kids you know there's plastic in the ocean now if I say to adults in an audience that's my canary singing in the background by oh, the way. that's such a sweet noise no worries I love it um, so I'll say, oh, to adults, there's so much plastic in the ocean. What can we do? And the adults sort of have a almost a fatalistic, oh, it's too much, too big. You say that same thing to a bunch of eight-year-olds, and they're like, well, let's go clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> let's do something about it. So I knew I wanted to write for them. And then a couple of years, about five years ago, I was asked, I was asked to write a series for middle grade. And... It was an instant yes. You know, it was not on my agenda, but when it was offered to me, it was, it was like, okay, the time is now. So I went to Angela May, who was working with me for 10 years as my assistant in PR. And I said, Angela, I'm, I knew she was a great writer. And I said, would you consider writing middle grade book? And she burst into tears. It was her unspoken dream that she always wanted to write for kids. So it was my first collaboration. But I knew with children what my message was going to be. When I raised my three kids, I took them to the mountains of Vermont. We had a huge sheep farm in the family. And every summer, we'd go up there and virtually I unleashed them and they went wild in the mountains. It's a miracle they're alive. (laughs) (laughs) But it was before Lyme's disease, I might add. And (laughs) what was fun was even though I knew I thought a lot about nature, when I was in that new environment, I went out with the kids and this is the key moms and grandmothers out there listening. We used to bring in leaves of the trees and the shrubs and the plants and we looked at the birds and we drew pictures and we put them on the walls we learned the names of everything around us Mm. and by doing that what was wild became our backyard it could be a thousand acres or an acre it doesn't make any difference you know what surrounds you outdoors and it's familiar and those kids never were indoors. I mean, they were outdoors all day. And if you ask those kids who are in their 30s today, what were the best summers of their life to a one, they'll point to those, you know, growing up in the summers in Vermont. So I knew I wanted to bring my young readers to a place where they were 
totally wild where there's un, unexplored areas and no internet and no TV. Yeah. And there, there is such a place near Isle of Palms called Deweese Island. It's a real place. And I knew that was the place to set it because it's accessible only by ferry. No cars, no stores of any kind. It's a wildlife sanctuary. And for this one grandmother, no internet. So I, the little boy is a classic little boy. It's the worst summer ever. I don't have, I got to stay with my grandmother on an island with no internet. What? <laughs> but in, in the course of the study, uh, summer, they study the environment, they learn to explore. And what I, my goal was with Angela is to have the kids learn through story, following these adventures with the kids, that being outdoors is fun. I'm not teaching them to go outdoors. I, we give them journals. We have them um, in search for treasure, which is the new one. They have, um, they find a gold doubloon. And of course, the search for Blackbeard's treasure is on. Oh, and wow. it's just that <laughs> it's a lot of fun to be outside. And that's the key. What can we do with our children to go out with them to get outside? And research is really clear that an hour or two every day is essential for mental health. Yeah. So, that, and just the, the aspect of encouraging them to explore uh, mm. is so powerful. I have my own children are eight, seven, and four right now. And I can absolutely relate to this outdoorsy. My kids are constantly outside. Um, and that has just kind of always been their nature. I've, of course, encouraged it, but they really do just prefer to be outside. Nice. But watching them like turn over the bricks in the backyard and look for roly polies and (laughs) my daughter working in her fairy garden that she meticulously creates with everything in the back. I know me too. And I mean, this was me when I was younger too. I grew up right next to a little Creek and I, we had lots of wild. I mean, I was, we were just outside the city, so I was not by any means in like out in the country, <laughs> but yeah. I did, we did have lots of, you know, just gardens around me and, and the wildlife that was there. Um, I think it's so powerful to encourage kids, especially in today's day and age to explore the world around them. Just like you're explaining that you're, you're trying to bring them out of, you know, the technology and, and being indoors mm-hmm. and really get into the environment around them. <laughs> And let me touch on one point that you just made about the fairies. I think there are many different personalities in our kids. We can have joy as a parent or a grandparent to have a secret uh, game with our grandchildren or whatever. If it's fairies, wonderful. Create a fairy garden. The imagination is so wonderful out in the wild. But while you're doing that, why don't you name the flowers? Show her the names. Oh, you know, they might like um, fill in the blank flower in your garden. So the children are, you are both sometimes learning the names of the flowers. If you're, if you have a little boy who's much more interested in um, wildlife, um, look at tracks in your yard or in the near, near far, forest. Uh, what are the names of the birds? That's really a big one. Name the birds. Take pictures and put them up on your wall and um, make a, have a journal in the, in the Islanders. The grandmother just gave the kids a composition notebook, you know, the kind you can buy for 50 cents. And she's told them, go out and draw a picture of what you're interested in. And when they came back, she taught them how to look it up. So that they learn, it's so critical to learn the names. Yes, 
That's such great advice to make it an educational experience. And like you said, for both of us, exactly. Like yeah. it's making me excited to now try this with my own, my own two other ones. I know that they like my little guy is really into wildlife and my daughter is really into the fairies. So I'm gonna hop on this assignment. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you too. So we often discuss the topic of uh compassion on this podcast. Mm. Can you tell us what your own definition of compassion is and how it relates to the work that you do? To my mind, compassion is synonymous with kindness. And when you have compassion, you, it, you remove ego from the equation. And it's about really listening and trying to understand the other person's position. And when you do, you can feel for them, even if you are ideologically opposed or you um, stand on opposite sides of an issue. If you listen to them and understand their position, you can show compassion. And I think in wildlife, you don't, there's not a lot of compassion in wildlife. Wildlife is, um, they live by their instincts and they, it's all about survival. But I think what elevates the human species is altruism and compassion and um, understanding. And that there's a, it makes life all the more precious. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's such, such a beautiful way to look at it. It really, it, I love the, the thought of bringing, you know, more kindness and compassion to, to our wildlife by just being more aware and more conscious and more caring. Uh, well, a good example of it's creating the environment. A good example of compassion in wildlife would be um, a yard. Let's say we have a backyard and, you know, instinctively we just do what we want to survive, to grow our vegetables or whatever. The compassion comes in understanding, all right, if I spray this poison on the plants and a butterfly comes by, that butterfly will eat the poison and die. So therefore, I will look for a natural way so that I share this planet with the butterflies or the birds or the other animals because the use of insecticides is killing off not, not only insects, but the birds and butterflies. And it's compassion there is the understanding, the wisdom, and then acting on kindness and for general welfare of everyone. I think that's a, um, that's altruism. And that is, that is a higher calling, I think. Absolutely. And it really, that actually leads me to my next uh, question for you, because I'm wondering, we, we also talk about community a lot on this podcast. Can you speak to the importance of community support and how acting locally can make a greater impact globally? Oh my gosh, it's lighting one candle. I'll tell you really quickly, my, when I was young, my father, I'm one of 10 children. My father, I always wanted to save something. And my father, who was probably weary, tapped my head and said, Mary Alice, you don't have to save the world. Just light one candle. And I thought he was shushing me up. In fact, now that I'm older, I realize he was saying exactly what you just said. Think globally, but act locally. What can you do in your own life, your own world? to make a difference. I started a group and it's on my Facebook page called Light One Candle. And on that group, we I invite people to share ways that they can help the world just in their own 
little way. For example, um, recycling, not using plastic bottles, getting a, getting one of those swell bottles or water bottles that just to avoid the use of uh, plastics, not to use balloons. Um, what can you do in your own neighborhood, in your community? Do you want to do a community animal count? Or sometimes they have a butterfly count or bird count. Um, what can you do for, a, if you live on a coast, you can spend one day volunteering for a beach sweep or just if you take a walk on a beach, if you pick up one piece of trash, one piece you've done a difference. So what's that lighting one candle each day? And that's enough. I absolutely love that because it's so in line with uh, really the purpose of this podcast, Mm. uh, be the good. You know, when I first started this, my intention really was for these conversations to serve as a spark of inspiration for my listeners Mm. to find, or or really to just like come to under better understand the fact that you don't need to necessarily take on something, some grand gesture to make a difference in the world, right? That it, it really, it's all these little intentional acts that all together create an impact. And so when we think about acting locally, uh, mm. that's how it makes sense. You know, it becomes this, I love the lighting one candle. It's a ripple effect mm. that if we become intentional about the good that we want to do just here where we are, right? In our own community, in our own neighborhood, uh, to see the beautiful, um, you know, things that can come from that. And uh, the key to that, Christy, the key is volunteering. Yes. I, my life, my career was built on volunteering. And I mean, I found my first agent by volunteering. So it doesn't have to be with wildlife. I mean, find out where your passion lies. What are you interested in? And volunteer in it. You, if you don't like it, you don't. You have no commitment. You can quit at any time. But I have volunteered with so many different areas of wildlife. And each time I did it, I not only learned about the species and, and was enamored, but I met wonderful people. And my husband, he's, he's not into wildlife as much, but he uh, does reading partners. So once a week he goes and he tutors a third grader how to read. Find out Girl Scouts. You can work in a um, any community effort. If you choose one day a week to get out of your nest and go out and volunteer, you will have so much more, A, mental health um, growth. Um, You'll feel better. So that's really important, number one. Number two, research really is clear that for as you get older and have have memory issues and mental decline, volunteering, getting out into social situations improves your mental clarity. And then, of course, you're lighting one candle. Such great advice and so important to point that out. The need for volunteers is so great in every community. Great. It's fun. Yeah. And you just have to find that one thing that that excites you, you know, or one thing that will feel uh, you feel a connection to that'll keep you coming Mm. back. Right. Absolutely. Whether it's out in the garden or indoors in some club. I mean, volunteering is something that is passionate for you. And will it'll your passion then will help your community? Absolutely. Well, I cannot thank you enough for sharing all of this wonderful 
wisdom and insight and inspiration <laughs> about everything that you do, but really mostly about your passion for wildlife and and just inspiring us all to to do our own good in our own way. So can you tell us where or how we can best follow along with your work, uh, where we can purchase your books, and how we can support your ongoing conservation efforts? Well, thank you. What a lovely offer. I have a website, maryalicemonroe.com, and I'm on Facebook, Mary Alice Monroe, the author page. So that's the bigger page. And I usually keep people up to date. My new book is Search for Treasure, which is the middle grade book two. And this first one is The Islanders. I am an adult novelist. The latest one is The Summer of Lost and Found, which is uh, again, set against sea turtles, that whole series with the beach house. So I invite everyone to come and the Light One Candle page is on Facebook. So please um, join me there. Absolutely. I know I'll be joining you for sure. Oh, thank you, Christy. I encourage everyone else to also, and I will put a link in um, the show notes here to everything you just mentioned so everyone can easily access. Wonderful. Uh, I, for one, am also very excited to get into a beach novel for the summer. So I'm I'm heading right to figure out which one of your books I'm going to read this summer. Uh, thank so thank you. you, Mary Alice, so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you, Christine. Looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Good Podcast. Please like, comment, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Be The Good Podcast. And remember, we can all find our own way to be the good. Mm-hmm.